we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Do you remember when your mother used to say, just because Johnny jumped over a cliff, it doesn't mean you do? Hmm. I'm Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to America Out Loud Pulse. Always a beat ahead. Words mean everything. There's a growing movement in certain medical circles to change the name of obesity to make it more patient-friendly. They want to call it adiposity-based chronic disease, or ABCD. This was proposed in 2016, but it hasn't really seemed to catch on. Abortion services became reproductive health. That one has stuck. Sex change surgery is now called gender-affirming care. Sex change sounded a bit clownish, since most people knew you really couldn't change your sex. Except for some rare conditions, a person is born with a set of double X or XY chromosomes. Gender-affirming care sounds so compassionate, so medically reasonable, to physically change a person to comport with the gender by which he or she wants to, as they say, identify as. But it's some sort of delusion that injecting children with drugs will magically turn them into the opposite sex. The wordsmithing seems to have no limits. One child psychologist at a major medical center has suggested that children can identify as gender hybrids. The Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services agrees with eliminating the word mother in exchange for egg carrier or gestational parent. My goodness. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, otherwise known as the CDC, offers advice on chest feeding. Changing words is reminiscent of George Orwell's Newspeak in his often cited novel, 1984. The point of Newspeak was to control the language and discourage individual thought and critical thinking. The medical establishment has demonstrated that it is not immune. Major organizations have bizarrely latched on to making medical decisions based on the winds of politics. It seems this frightening trend to put ideology over science will result in permanent scarring of some of our most precious and vulnerable human beings. But there's hope. More and more states and sports groups are recognizing the unfairness and safety concerns of permitting biological men to compete in women's sports. 19 states have laws protecting youth from medical procedures that would likely permanently do irreparable harm to their bodies. Mind you, we're talking about minors, not adults who are presumably mature and capable of thinking through a serious decision. My guest today will explore these issues and much, much more. Dr. Lauren Schwartz is a board-certified psychiatrist. She graduated from the University of Oklahoma College of Medicine with distinction and completed her residency in psychiatry at the University of Oklahoma's Health Science Center, 
with additional training in psychoanalytic theory through Oklahoma Psychoanalytic Society. She is currently in private practice in Oklahoma, applying a psychodynamic approach to both psychotherapy and psychopharmacology. Most recently, she has collaborated with Dr. Marion Grossman and authored two appendices for Dr. Grossman's book, Lost in Transnation, A Child Psychiatrist's Guide Out of the Madness. Welcome to the show, Dr. Schwartz. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, goody, goody, goody. We're going to get started. But before we talk about our topic, I just have to talk about you a little bit. I just love it when physicians have an unexpected secret past life. No, (laughs) she wasn't a streetwalker. Prior to going in medicine, you were a professional ballet dancer. Tell us about it. I was. Yes, I was. um, I just had a wonderful experience. Um, And what was interesting is I was given my first professional contract as in high school. My senior year, I was given an apprenticeship with the local ballet company here. And then I was the kid that was not ever going to go back to college. I was just going to go straight, straight to dancing. And I had a career and I was so excited and I was given a full company membership um, upon graduating. And then I found my way to Southern California, where I danced with a smaller ballet company um, in Southern California for a bit and then took a job with the Sacramento Ballet and danced there for a couple of years before making my way back to Oklahoma and academics. Well, what made you go into medicine? Well, that's kind of a, I think a little bit of a convoluted path as well. I um, I think it was probably always somewhere in my genetics. I grew up with a father who is a psychiatrist. Um, so a lot of folks I think that, that meet me now think, oh, she followed in her father's footsteps. And I will tell you, both of my parents did such a wonderful job of kind of dusting over their own footprints. So myself and my brothers could kind of forge our own paths. Um, so, but when I did find my way back to academics, I loved human behavior. I loved childhood development and and attachment theories. My undergraduate degree was in psychology and I was actually on a path to, um, completing, um, or, or actually starting a PhD program, um, in psychology and then thought, you know, I just hated hearing, well, if, there's a complicated case. You're going to refer on to a psychiatrist. They deal with the really hard stuff. And I thought, well, I want to know about all that as well. If I'm going to really treat people and and help people with mental health challenges, I really wanted to have all the information that I could. And I was, I was very hungry, I think, for learning and knowledge. And so that's that's kind of where I started. So I was the med student that knew from the get-go that I wanted to do psychiatry. So and here you are. And, and here that- I am. And that's what we're going to discuss on this show. We talked about um, this sex change surgery or gender affirming care for children. I've discussed it with pediatricians and, and trying to decide where this comes from and how people got into it. What got you to keep digging into that gender affirming care? Sure. So I think it was it kind of it was two drivers that came together at the same time. Um, one really, I kind of was my husband and I became aware of some stuff going on in our kids' school, and it wasn't anything that was some big giant program or some big um, 
protocol that was rolled out immediately. But a few years ago, you know, pre-pandemic, we were just hearing some things that just to me just didn't sit right. And I just as a mom, I have, I have three kids. And at the time, I just thought, well, this, this it doesn't seem developmentally appropriate. I would I would go to the school and say, hey, my, my kids are talking about you know, X, Y, and Z, is there something I'm missing? And very much at first it was met with, no, 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 that's, you know, that's not the intention or, and then it started to turn into, well, this is what the experts are saying is best. And I, you know, I was like, well, I am a psychiatrist. I mean, I have some background (laughs) in mental health and wellness, but okay, help me understand who these experts are and and what we're doing. Um, And again, it wasn't, like I said, not any big giant programs or in any way did I feel like the whole school was rolling some, something out, but um, the experts they led me to were things like, um, you know, different groups, school counselor associations, um, school board associations, GLSEN, things that I had not really ever been aware of or heard of. Um, and the further I dug, the further I saw that, well, okay, now the associations I'm, you know, connected with, the American Psychiatric Association and and um, American, Academy, American Academy of Pediatrics, um, you know, endocrine society, all these different huge medical societies that were supposed to represent, you know, kind of the consensus in the medical field were also saying these same things. So I really kind of was left scratching my head. And then around the same time, I started seeing things just kind of trickle into my practice, not necessarily all of a sudden seeing things, but I would see, you know, younger adults struggling with decisions they had made several years prior or a family struggling with how to handle things going on with their children or their children's friends. And just, I wanted to know, okay, how do I talk to my kids school about this in the best way and in most informed way? And how do I talk to my patients about that too? Well, what were some of the things, obviously without revealing any patient confidences that people were conflicted about what what could they actually I just can't imagine walking into a doctor's office and having to spill out all these deep dark feelings and and uh, years of struggle with something how how did how did the patients even approach it well interestingly and I I did have not only my own patients talking about it, I was able to um, have the ability to to meet with some groups, whether it was through some of the organizations I was working with um, and less of a patient, you know, patient doctor relationship, but hearing stories from families, hearing stories that, well, you know, well, what do you mean? You know, nobody told me mood changes could could occur if I took estrogen. Um, You know, so you have, let's say a a male transitioning to female um, who has uh, I don't prescribe hormones, right? So I'm sitting there helping someone through mood changes and they've already been told by someone that, hey, this can't happen if you're, you know, aligning with your identity, you just have to get used to it and you need to be on psychiatric meds to help you through it. And I'm just sitting there going, okay, I don't, I don't know about that, but I will say, you know, even starting a patient on birth control, um, you know, in early adult, of course it can impact your mood. Um, any hormone replacement therapy that we have or treatment that we have to have someone on, of course, there could be mood shifts. It's not, this isn't specific to um, transgender and transgenderism or transition. It's just that um, these, these things can cause side effects. The other thing I would hear often was, well, you're the first person I can talk with about side effects, or we can talk with you about our family members' side effects because they can't do it in those clinics. If they go there and they talk about side effects, they're just going to get their medicine taken away and it's it's life-saving and they have to be on it. And 
they're not, maybe they'll be told they're not necessarily transgender if they can't tolerate these hormones, um, which is a horrible thing to say to, to any individual. Well, let's start at the beginning here and define what does it mean to be transgender? What is trans- transgenderism? Is it do you consider it a psychiatric illness? Is it just a, a medical condition? How do let's start at the top, you know, and, and step through what it is, how you would diagnose it, and then we'll go on to what you would do about it. Sure. So I think the way I would, just as I would explain it to maybe a family or a patient is that transgender in in general is not a psychiatric diagnosis, right? It's not a a diagnosis in and of itself when there's distress or dysphoria around something. um, So what we would look at what the APA calls um, or the the DSM calls um, gender dysphoria when there's a dysphoria around a certain um, a certain thing that you're struggling with, then we, that's, you know, that's why people are coming in to see me. So I think it's transgender can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I think that's where I think what you spoke to earlier was so important. Language has flipped over and over on this, you know, going from pre DSM five, which is our diagnostic and statistical manual, you know, being a gender identity disorder to now we change it to gender dysphoria. And then moving into, there are a lot of folks out there that do not have any dysphoria around whether or not they feel that they are transgender, that they feel that the... Let let me stop you one sec. What does dysphoria mean? Describe what what the emotion of dysphoria is, you know, any kind of dysphoria. Sure. So it's, it's just, it's intense feelings of distress around something. Okay. All right. Good, good, good. Sure. So, so that can exist, um, obviously for a million different reasons for someone, then you can have other, other folks that are not at all distressed, um, are living their lives. And again, that's what we've seen also with this gender affirming care. It's this insistence that no matter what, that you need to medicalize, that you need to treat. Um, so that's, that's been a very different shift. Well, what going back in Mm -hmm. history, uh, I was alive, I hate to say, or I guess glad to say, when um, Christine Jorgensen was in the news, that was someone who had converted male to female in England back in the 60s. And then later on, there was Renee Richards, who was male to female, who was a tennis player. She was an ophthalmologist. And that kind of hit the news. I'm sure there's been transgender people for years what is it, do you think, that has made it become so public? It seems like a very private thing to do and an adult thing to do. And suddenly it seems very public, uh, involving minors. And this is what I don't get. Sure. And the best way I is honestly, there are parts of this that I don't understand either. Um, some of it just is I continue to to look at some of the policies and procedures rolled out that, you know, when you look at anything in medicine or in psychology, you want to look at what's developmentally appropriate and what a a person can say at age eight um, comprehend and to what extent is very different from age 12 or age 18 or age 25 or when prefrontal cortex is fully developed around 25, 26, 27. I mean, there's this huge developmental process going on. And so 
I think that's part of what we're seeing is that um, I, I certainly think the internet has been and social media has been very, very um, kind of an integral part of this. You know, you hear stories told and shared, and it's not just with um, a gender dysphoria or a transgender identity. You see this around a lot of different things and diagnoses that someone saw something on TikTok that they identify with. And it's like, that has to be my problem. And it's my one and only problem. And then I bring it to my doctor and they have to treat it right away, which that's just never been how we've approached medicine or, or mental health ever. Um, so that's been very different. Um, but I do think social media, I think there's younger and younger folks exposed to so many concepts that developmentally they, they're going to struggle with. It's interesting you say that, seeing something on TikTok and diagnosing. I just recently read an article by a person who said there was a uh, test on TikTok to see if you had ADHD. And the person, of course, who took the test did not have ADHD, but according to the TikTok answer, she did. So this is beware of diagnosing on TikTok. No question. And additionally, to your point, if someone came into my office and said, well, I'm meeting you for the first time and I have taken this quiz on TikTok and now I have ADHD and you have to prescribe a stimulant right here, right now. Well, I would say, okay, well, let's take a step back. Let me get to know you. Let me understand everything about you. Let's take a comprehensive, developmentally appropriate approach to this and understand, do you have medical history that I need to worry about or be very careful of or cautious of? Meaning maybe your heart doesn't want to be started on a stimulant or another traditional medicine for ADHD. Um, TikTok doesn't test for those. Um, Well, we're going to talk a lot about this whole idea of not knowing a lot of things about a person's past and uh, formulating a medical treatment. This is one thing I found so disturbing when this trend now of schools being able to hide gender identity issues from the parents. If a child's sneaking these hormones and the child has some sort of medical problem from this, the parent's not going to know where the medical problem's coming from. They won't even know the question to ask. So there's so much involved in that sort of thing. So we have so much more to talk about, and we will after the break. Cofix RX nasal solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. 
Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. Okay, before the break, we were talking about some of the problems if parents don't know about gender issues in their children. And one of the things I had talked about in the introduction was words. And one of the things I know that bothers you, Dr. Schwartz, are using, what do you call it, childlike naming of what's going on with these kids. Can you discuss that and some of the names and and what's really happening versus sort of the fairy tale look? Sure. Well, and I think it starts with um, just gender affirming care in general. When you, and even when I was starting to discover what it was and all of the things that it wasn't, um, you know, it does sound very, I mean, of course, we all want to affirm. We want to affirm every patient. We want to support in a supportive way. It's, it's. I think, so it sounds like, well, who wouldn't get on board with that and support, especially children? Um, we all want to support and be inclusive. And then, but I think what happens is things very quickly um, take on names that one, when someone's not developmentally ready to understand what's going on, um, things can of sneak by um, and then and then parents don't necessarily have the awareness of or um, medical knowledge to know exactly what's meant. You know, one of one of I think the most obvious examples of this is when you talk about um, top surgery. Um, top surgery, for example, for a female transitioning to male is um, um, what is described on a lot of these websites as removing excess chest tissue. And what it's doing, it's a radical double mastectomy um, on a completely healthy individual. Um, and uh, many times we see it happening um, in younger and younger folks, especially here in the United States. And to me that it just couldn't be more misleading. Wow. Top surgery. That's all I hear mm-hmm. about now. Oh yeah. Oh, have you had top surgery? Sure. Uh, and uh what about with men, at least with men who get breast implants, it's something external and it hasn't destroyed the underlying tissue. And if they decide to get the breast implants removed, presumably their chest would go back to normal. But these poor girls, their mammary glands are gone. Yeah. Yeah. So you've taken away not just healthy tissue, um, but you've taken away their ability to, if they ever do choose to have children of their own, if they still can, um, depending on if puberty has been blocked or they've been on cross sex hormones, um, they may, maybe they want to choose to have their own children and they, they do not have the ability. You've taken away their ability to choose to breastfeed. And I think that's heartbreaking um, to me asking a 12 year old or a 14 year old or even a you know, 17 or 18 year old, whether or not they want to choose to breastfeed future children, you might be asked, you should be, you could ask him about, you know, a hundred years from now. Um, there's just developmentally, they're not there yet. Okay. Let's have the dreaded <laughs> bottom <Sorry>. surgery. <laughs> oh my goodness. When I first heard that, I thought, oh my God, how could, sure. how could they take something so drastic and just call it bottom 
surgery. Right. Right. And I think also mislead children and young adults into thinking that, well, it's just, we're going to, we're going to take extra tissue and just create something differently. We're going to create a penis or create a vagina. And at the end of the day, it's not a functional penis or vagina. You know, I do think that especially in younger folks, minors, they do have this fantasy or hope that, okay, I will be able to have something that's fully functional. Um, and instead you're talking about kids that will be forever independent or dependent on hormones. Um, you know, if testicles have been removed, now you've got a, a child that eventually, you know, growing into adulthood, you've got to have hormone replacement therapy. Um, so it's, it's devastating. And once you take out someone's testicles, you cannot put them back and this is very important for people to know. And, and we're saying all this because just like how they say almost everybody in America, whether you're a doctor or not, has been touched by the opiate epidemic, more and more people are being touched by this transgenderism epidemic. And maybe some of this will teach people things they can keep in the back of their head that if push comes to shove, they can blurt out. They can't put them back once right. they're gone. Absolutely. And I do even think there was a, a surgeon, um, I believe it was in LA that could, there was a presentation of hers released online that where she was saying, look, if you guys want breasts later on, just go get them. Well, there's, we know um, whether you're in, in medicine or not. Um, that's a whole different process and procedure than naturally functioning and developing breast, breast tissue, mammary glands that, that have function, not just, it's not just about appearance. And you wonder about even the feeling, anything that goes along with keeping your body the way you were born with. And I mean, let's face it, this is plastic surgery. This isn't changing your genes. This isn't morphing you like some the terminator or something that can change into other things this it's it's permanent end of yes. story absolutely and i think that's what's been really difficult that i think especially with younger folks you know i've heard the argument that well no one's saying that we're we're telling anyone we can change their chromosomes but at a young enough age a child doesn't have the ability to understand the difference between chromosomes and necessarily how they feel or what could they what they could become and then again telling a child that they're born in the wrong body and that's where you start your therapeutic as well as your medicalization work it doesn't make a lot of sense to me well it certainly doesn't and somehow with kids um they'll take anything that's told to them this is what uh, amazes me is mm -hmm. when kids are young you're telling them don't believe your friends just because they do it you can't do it just because johnny said that that doesn't mean it's true and kids are so what's not impressionable Absolutely. that they they believe almost anything and that's what's kind of sad and look what happened with the um, mcmartin case with the child abuse and um, daycare centers. And when suddenly every single daycare center magically had child abuse and the kids were able, I, and, and I'm sure it happened in some centers to some children, sure. but not every single child in the majority of daycare centers <laughs> during a certain decade. Right. And, 
you know, they were able to tell these stories as though they were true. Sure. And I think that's been, when you talk about impressionable, kids are impressionable, you know, obviously their peers and what they're talking about with friends, but then you take adults that they look to for the expertise, for to hold the reality sometimes for them when they're, whether they're creative and exploring things or they're, they're working through feelings and maybe confusing, um, you know, moments in, in development that, that are actually, they, it helps lead to a more flexible sense of self and a better sense of self and a more self-compassionate sense of self. When they look to those experts, whether it's a teacher or a therapist or a parent, and they're all saying, oh, okay, no, we're going to, nope, just affirm. Nope, this is fixed. This is, we, this is the only thing. What it does is it psychologically locks them into that in a way they feel they can't argue with it anymore. You know, they can't say, well, wait, maybe I, I didn't really think I want to use those pronouns or use this name, or I really want, maybe I don't want to be pause my puberty or maybe, and it just becomes a more and more fixed path. Well, and this is something, and this is what parents are for. This is the other thing that's so distressing about what's going on in some schools, obviously not all, where parents uh, here in California, where parents are being kept out of the loop of what's going on with their kids or parents are being criticized for speaking up about it at mm-hmm. school board meetings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why you're the parent. I I don't get it. And that has gone so against the just the developmental theories that have been foundational in, you know, early childhood development programs and just the understanding of that parent-child relationship, that attachment is, there's nothing that compares to it. Now, this is not discounting. Of course, there are circumstances where a child is in an abusive situation. And of course, we get child protective services involved, but it's not the majority, kind of like your daycare center example. It's not that it's, you can't, you don't start assuming that every parent child relationship is either toxic or harmful, and then immediately start to separate that parent from their child. And we see so much of that. Um, It's the, my, your parents can't understand. We will protect you. We know best. Um, And I, that really, really worries me. Well, it worries me too. Certainly just, uh, as a mother of a very grown-up child at this point. But I remember when he was a preteen and a teen, and, and, and it was music to my ears when he first said he wanted to wash his own clothes, because that's <laughs> when baggy clothes were in, and he was afraid I might shrink them. <laughs> oh, please. I think he was afraid I might find something in his drawers, but, you know. <laughs> right. And, but that's when kids are starting to separate. I remember when he was around 11, he said, oh, when I get my own apartment, it's going to be on such and such street. And I thought, like, oh, don't get your own apartment. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're only 11 years old. Oh, but but that's, <laughs> that's exactly right. But that's what kids start to do. And so to have an outside force come in and then try to separate what I look in some sort of abnormal way, because there's that difference in the normal separation. You want your child to grow up. You want your child to start thinking for themselves, but they're still attached to you and good relationships. They are forever. They grow up, get married, but they still love their mother and their father. 
and still go to mother and father for advice. So there's that delicate balance between, you know, getting them out of the nest and, um, but not having a rift. And that's what this looks like is it's making a rift between parent and child. Yeah. And I, I do think that's, you know, that's one of the things when I first started kind of digging in deeper to a lot of this is just finding out ways to talk with families and, you know, whether the, you know, family member was going through it or just how to understand and talk with your child about any of this is just that that's, that's the foundation of any conversation is, is your love, is your connection. You've known this child longer than anyone else. Um, They are your child that listen to your intuition. You know, if you're hearing something from a therapist or from a doctor, it's okay to say, wait, hold on. This doesn't sound right. Um, And listening to that, I think is so important. And it, I think, um, you know, we're lucky in our state, it's not quite where California is, but I, I breaks my heart to hear parents say, I never knew they never, you know, the school was protecting my child thinking I would, I would reject him and I, I would never reject anything about them. I want to love and support them. Um, and so there's just this misleading, I think of children and that um, we're going to convince you, your parents are unsafe. And it's certainly, like you said, it's not happening in every single school. It's not every single teacher. I, I will always hold on to teachers and parents and, you know, they want what's best for these kiddos. Um, but it can get, it can go sideways so quickly when you strike at that parent-child relationship. Well, speaking of uh, parent-child relationship, let's mm-hmm. think about the doctor-patient relationship. Mm-hmm. What is it that has made the AMA and the Psychiatric Association, these um, the Pediatric Association, glom on to this idea and uh, where now it's kind of, will the doctor become bet- between the parent and child, right. where yes. they seem to be ignoring some of the science? Sure. Yeah. No, I thought you were going to tell me that because I'm still trying to figure out. <laughs> um, I think You're the I- psychiatrist. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, I, you know, this has been the more that I learn about just the process. What's been really interesting is I think outside looking in, there's somehow this message that it's this huge consensus across all psychiatrists or all pediatricians or all endocrinologists or pediatric endocrinologists. or And this is, this is what everyone feels is the only way you affirm often and you affirm early and that's the only way to go. And what's interesting is, and I don't, I'm not going to pretend to be a historian in this, but what it, it's not a big group of people, you know, a very small um, group, um, especially when like the DSM shifted its criteria and, and nomenclature. And um, some of it was, I think, very much more um, activist and civil right led versus, you know, doctors were out kind of, I mean, we were in the, um, you know, kind of in the trenches um, working. And all of a sudden you look up and it's like, wait, what has just happened? Um, you know, and so I do think that there's the feeling that it's, you know, this huge consensus, I think is inaccurate. Well, it's interesting to see medicine start to get politically motivated. I mean, politics is in every profession, you know, I don't care what you are, there's unions for various Mm -hmm. trades and, and we have these doctors organizations and they lobby. So Politics is part of anything people do. People are trying to make their profession better, make their life better, and hopefully 
when doctors go out and advocate, they're trying to make the patient's lives better. Mm-hmm. But this is this is one situation where the fear of being called a racist or a homophobe has now changed so much in medicine. And it 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 really it it bothers me to the core where mm-hmm. uh a social what what should I say? some sort of social concern and a social victory is going to supersede what's best for that individual patient in front of you. Before we go to the break, I'll quickly say this issue comes up in legal ethics. When I was in law school, one of the case examples was the clinic for homelessness has a homeless person and all he wants is a place to live. Well, he's been made a plaintiff in a case against some group because they weren't renting to the homeless people or the rents were too high, whatever it was. But the guy finds a home, so he doesn't want to be a plaintiff anymore. Legal ethical question. Do you fight on for all the homeless or you got to let your guy go? He's found a home. That was why he came to you in the first place. So we can't let the global issue supersede the individual patient in front of you. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk some more about this, go into a little bit of some of the side effects of some of these hormones and talk about adoption, foster care, what should foster parents do, and and why is this gender-affirming care so different from other things in medicine? And um, talk about as we like to always do on the show, what are some solutions? So after the break, all that. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. AmericaOutloud.news, delivering a message of truth, inspiration, and hope to the world. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. Join us in the fight for liberty and justice for all. America Out Loud Talk Radio. The pandemic may be over for some, But millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. You've heard Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company discuss the harmful effects of spike protein in your body. And now they found the solution, the miracle enzyme natokinase. Their spike support formula contains natokinase the most compelling and scientifically supported approach to safely clear spike protein out of the body. What's more, spike support is optimized with other all-natural, non-GMO ingredients, like dandelion root, to help prevent spike protein from binding to your cells. Everyone should take daily spike support so you can feel your best. America Out Loud listeners can go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. 
For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Before the break, I gave you this whole list of things we're going to talk about because can you believe it? We're in our last segment already. So we've got the medical organizations being all in for whatever reason. I think it's for fear of being called names. Why do you think the AMA and these other organizations are all in? Well, I, again, I, I always want to hold on to, you know, just goodness in the majority of folks that, I think a majority of physicians and healthcare providers and mental health care providers are all wanting to do what's best. I think when they find themselves a part, especially of an academic center um, or a big um, hospital institution, they fear, okay, well, if, if I get called out, I'll lose my job, I'll lose my tenure. You know, there's a lot of things on the line. Um, you know, so in private practice, I think I have a little more um, flexibility, but I, you know, there's a lot of physicians and colleagues that will not even discuss this um, with me just to have a conversation about, well, can you help me understand, you know, whether it's dosing or how on earth can you justify this? Or did you know? And that's the other thing is I am shocked just healthcare providers and mental health care providers that are not aware of the permanence and the severity of side effects that can occur. Well, uh, recently, <laughs> and it, I guess, well, actually, what, just for several months, the British National Health Service has stopped medical transitioning treatments for minors. So why is it that the USA is so far behind, and I believe some other countries, you can help me on that, who have also decided to back off? Mm -hmm. Yep, Sweden, Netherlands, I think there's seven, seven or eight now that have have backed off. And these are not countries that that didn't provide it before. These are countries that were well ahead of, I think, the United States in some ways and providing um, affirming care for minors. Um, but what they saw is as studies came out, as results were seen as I think some more national investigations into some of these bigger clinics um, occurred, it was just almost mind boggling how many um, challenges were being seen in the health and wellness of these kids. Some of the, whether it was statistics that were not released or they were, um, not discussed or talked about. I mean, it just, it was really shocking. And I will tell you, I've had several conversations with international colleagues saying, what are you guys doing over there? Like we're now coming out with this data and it's very, it's clearer and clearer every day. And it's, it's like, you know, we're doubling down on everything and treating it younger ages. And again, like I said, the affirmation often and early um, has kind of become what is associated with the United States. Well, this it's it's really a sad day because I don't see why we're taking so long. And when it's something that they're saying, if you in the United States, if you don't do it early, then the child is permanently ruined. And now we're finding out if you do do it early, the child is permanently ruined. And it's like permanently ruined. How I certainly totally, and I think a lot of people who might even be pro-transition are against having surgery on young folks. But 
at the UCSF clinic, right in their literature, they've had people as young as 15 have mastectomies. So mm-hmm. it's um, it's it's a sad state of affairs. And I don't know why we can't look to our fellow physicians and personnel over in Europe. I mean, we look to them for radiation therapy for cancer when they were at the forefront yes. of that. So, mm-hmm. you know, let's look at this. It's, sure. it's, it's really stunning. And that's what makes me think politics is, has done an evil deed and uh, really kind of infected the minds of some normal people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, as a psychiatrist, mm-hmm. we have now in California a law that says that if a parent, and this is for divorce and separation proceedings, if a parent doesn't go along with the gender identity transition, that Mm -hmm. is one of the factors that would support that that parent isn't interested in the best interests of the child and, Mm -hmm. you know, goes in the column for abuse. And now there's starting to be stories, excuse me, of parents being denied the ability to be foster parents or become adoptive parents if they don't say in their questionnaire they would agree to gender transitioning. What do you think about that? And, you know, when we need foster parents and would it, would it be hideous if a foster parent didn't agree with gender transitioning? Can you go into that a little bit? Sure. Well, and I think, I mean, again, kind of going back to parents being identified as, you know, in a custody situation or a divorce situation, identified as the unsupportive parent. Um, It's, again, heartbreaking knowing that every child is different. Every child has an individual path. Um, And certainly if you're talking about now a foster care situation, how you know, trauma laden or difficult has that child's path already been? Um, And to sometimes just recognize let's find out what's going on. Why, why not just slow things down, work through things in a non-invasive, non-medicalized way so that we can understand from a psychotherapeutic perspective, what's going on, how best we can support, and then treat the things that we need to treat if that, if that is, you know, still a challenge. But um, yeah, I just, again, it's, it's that targeting the parental support um, at the expense of the child's future and future health and well-being. It's interesting. And I got interested in this foster care issue. Oh, several years back, I wrote an article about all of us being on so many drugs and antidepressants and various psychotropics and whatnot, and read a report from the General Accountability Office that And this shows you that an issue is bad when it gets all the way to the General Accountability Office, that children in foster care were put on psychotropic meds four times more than the general population. Now, part of it, of course, is what you mentioned. They've had issues. That's why they're in foster care in the first place, no doubt. But four times more is certainly a number that makes you widen your eyes and say, are we just trying to shut these kids up? Do we not want to spend Medicaid money on talk therapy? And uh, which talk therapy can work, but it does take longer than drugs. So 
<laughs> what do you think? Well, and that's, you know, I think that's why I was really interested in a lot of this to begin with is I've always loved the psychotherapeutic side of things. And I, you know, definitely sought out any type of um, psychodynamic independent studies I could do and psychoanalytic studies I could do. And so I think when you look at just general principles um, of, you know, taking the least invasive, the least permanent um, intervention, I'm working in psychotherapy where most of that work is done. Medicine can be a tool, but it's a very small tool. And what you hope is a giant tool bag um, that these patients can grow and, and take with them and, you know, use at different times where it's not just medical dependence. And I know, I think even in just traditional psychiatric practices, um, that's a little bit of an outlier, but I, I provide therapy with almost all of my patients. I love working in that therapeutic setting. And so we look at just, you know, dysphoria of any kind. Um, you, there's so many different elements and layers to it. And that's what, to me, that's at the core of, of, good medicine and safe medicine and medical excellence. Um, you know, and so to stray away from that, especially when you're talking about a child that's developing, how you could decide, oh, this is just as quote unquote simple as we give this medication or we give this hormone, we put them on this path and then that's going to fix everything. And I think parents sometimes want to believe that children want to believe that um, if they're, if they're feeling so distressed, um, but we know that, yeah, just pouring medications on is not the answer for anyone. Well, it's kind of interesting because that's become the universal tool now mm-hmm. that we're in this era of seven-minute doctor visits. The easy mm-hmm. answer, the easy fix is a pill. And uh, look where it's gotten us now. My goodness. Well, you've kind of gone into it a little bit, but tick off the big difference between gender affirming care and other other uh, disciplines in medicine. When you go in and take a history and the person walks in, they might not say it's for gender affirming care, but maybe they do. There's certain things that you're going to ask them versus what you ask them when somebody comes in and they might think they have heart disease or they might think they have cancer or whatever. Are people treated differently and, and, and looking for a mental health. I mean, because even cancer is hypochondria, cancer is real cancer. Uh, how, how, how are these people treated differently? Well, I think, I guess it depends on if you're talking about how I try to approach care, you know, and always advocate for the, for medical excellence and therapeutic excellence. Um, and in terms of treatment um, and therapeutic treatment and support, um, obviously we know, and we're seeing a lot of the European countries turn back to this, that the psychodynamic psychotherapeutic approach is where you start. You know, you don't um, just narrow in and I think what it, it shifted from is a child-centered approach, which is a wonderful thing, right? We wanna make sure we're always supportive of the child to child-led. You know, when someone comes in and says, this is my diagnosis and you can't ask any other questions, of course, I'm going to ask about a history and developmental history with a parent if I'm working with a a younger patient, or I'm going to talk with them about their trauma history and their biopsychosocial um, experiences and, and work with them and get to know them. And that first time I'm meeting someone, I know the least amount about that person. Um, And as I grow and what I know about them and we learn about each other and they're um, helping me to um, develop a treatment plan, that's where you're really coming up with this individualized 
approach. I mean, so that's where I think this absolutely differs um, from really any other way we approach things. I think another really important difference um, is that what suicidality is. We're in mental health. If someone's suicidal, that is an absolute emergency. Um, it's, you know, full stop. We Safety and stabilization has to come first. And then you then you start to explore other things where in especially with the gender affirming um, approach, it's 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 almost become a diagnostic criteria. Um, well, th- until you fix this, I'm go- I'm suicidal. And that really makes treatment very, very difficult. Well, speaking of suicide, uh, mm-hmm. I think it was either in JAMA or maybe even the CDC came out with these numbers based on a study that came out in JAMA, saying Journal of American Medical Association, mm-hmm. saying that there weren't bad effects and there weren't people who regretted having gender-affirming surgery, not mm-hmm. just the hormones, which we know have side effects, not only hormonal, but a lot of brain swelling type side effects as well. And uh, in women to men, heart side effects, mainly in more coronary artery disease. So there Mm -hmm. certainly are those physical side effects, but mentally, they come out with a study saying, and usually these are self-reported, which I find interesting, Mm because we all know self-reported studies are biased in one direction, (laughs) and it depends on how you ask the question. Where the people said they had no regrets. How do you how do you fight it when somebody comes up? Well, they put a study out and said people didn't have any regrets and that it kept them from committing suicide. Yeah. But and you, I think you know I think what you can you say? To, yeah. And I think what you have to do is, and that's why I really started delving into this in detail and digging into all of those original studies and understanding the truly the weaknesses of those studies. Um what they didn't talk about, um, you know, the, the, and I'm not a statistician, so I mean, we can, but we can talk about just the idea of reported suicide completions, for example, at the um, Jids Clinic in the UK um, with the Tavistock. I mean, they had, I believe it was 15,000 um, patients to look at retrospectively. And of those, it would, any suicide is tragic and we want to prevent, prevent every single one. But of those over many, many years, there were four completed suicides. Interestingly, two were in treatment and two were on the wait list. So there wasn't even an ability to speak to suicidality because of a certain treatment or lack thereof. Um, and there's a lot more studies, I think, coming out about um, suicidalities in those that have transitioned that, that are, that are five, 10, 15 years out. Um, so it's, it's, choice of what statistics you're looking at, like you said, self-report as well. But I also talk with folks about, you know, there's very few things that if someone says this is 100% risk-free or this is 100% reversible, um, we can just pause puberty and it's just 100% reversible. I always question that certainty. Certainty in medicine makes me really, really um, question what's going on. Definitely. Now, in our final moments here, what would you say, let's say you're in a school board meeting or you're talking to other parents in a non-clinical setting, how do you change the conversation from something that's so polarized to something to get people to have an open discussion about this and hopefully be able to have an open discussion with their children? 
I think what I would say um, really in any setting is that when I am in a room with a patient, which is how I would approach any discussion about this, whether it's with a school board or um, political group or otherwise, I set all of my beliefs aside. I have a lot of them, political, spiritual, um, religious beliefs, um, but they don't belong in the room with the patient. I'm there to provide the best possible medical treatment and psychiatric care that I can. And in doing so, it's my job to discuss risk versus benefits. It's not transphobic for me to discuss risks versus benefits of a certain hormone someone is considering. Um, It's not, you know, I am there to provide information. I think educating yourself um, on truly what all of these these things entail is is very, very important. My hope is as a, a psychiatrist, I can do that for not just my patients, but also if I am in front of a school board or in front of um, a group of parents, I think if you go in with a, a polarized approach or a very defensive approach, you're going to shut down the room anyway. Um, and again, I, I just can't see an argument against excellence in medical and mental health care for children um, and for adults. I mean, that's, that is our job. Um, that is what we, we are passionate about. I am still very passionate about. I'm never going to let go of every single individual person deserves to be treated with respect and dignity and empathy and compassion and supported as a whole person. Well, I think you've said it all. And we've said this so many times on this show. That's what we're looking for is excellence, compassion, everything for the patient. That's what medicine is all about. Dr. Schwartz, thank you so much for coming on the show. And I, oh, it's been wonderful. And I do hope you'll agree to come back. I have so many more questions about so many things. <laughs> I would love to anytime. This has been fantastic. Well, thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. There's so many wonderful things on the website now. We now have something called a trending cloud that kind of floats above where all the topics are that you can look into and you can click it on and see what's going on in the world. And we still have our email feature where you can email first names are fine into a host and you can, we, you can ask questions of the host or the guest and we'll get an answer back to you. One of our brand new features is AmericaOutloud.shop and As the name says, it's a shopping site and it's got the books of the folks that we've had on the show, plus some other books of interest. It's got some of the medications, vitamins, got Cofix on there. Um, And the fun thing about that is we keep it so simple here. If you use the code out loud when you purchase, you'll get a discount. So, so many good things on the website now. I'm so proud of the website. So thanks again for listening. And remember, whether you agree or have other opinions, please share the show. And until next week, say it loud. I'm free and I'm proud.